Welcome to Pratidwani, where we try to humanize science. It is my delight and pleasure to introduce you to my guest on this episode, uh, Neeldara Mishra. Uh, Neeldara is a computer scientist and also is deeply interested and uh, excited about uh, communicating uh, science, especially computer science and also peripheral and related mathematics. She has actually been very active on various different aspects related to computer science education and also many interesting questions related to computer science as a researcher. And uh, it is my pleasure and delight to uh, welcome uh, Neeldara on this particular platform. And she is also a professor, associate professor of, uh, of computer science and engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology, Gandhinagar. But we'll hear, uh, hear about her more from, uh, from Neeldara herself. Neeldara, welcome to Pratidwani. Thank you so much, Pavan. Such a pleasure to be here. A uh, big fan of uh, your podcast series. I've been tuned in uh, for a while now. And uh, it's been lovely listening to all the stories that you bring out. And um, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't imagine myself making it, um, you know, on your platform. But um, now that we're here, it's, uh, you know, it's such a delight. And uh, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. So, uh, Nilara, give us a flavor about uh, your uh, biographical kind of uh, journey uh, until now. Especially the crucial question we generally ask is, uh, how did you really get interested in what you do? And uh, I'm very sure there will be roots of these, these questions uh, to right up to your, uh, your, your growing up days. So, give us a flavor of that, please. Yeah, for sure. So... Um, this is a question that I relate to a lot. I mean, one of the reasons I enjoy reading biographies or watching uh, biopics is because I'm also super curious about how people figured out uh, what they wanted to do, what they eventually ended up doing uh, in life, because I was a very confused soul growing up. And, um, you know, I didn't have the kind of um, uh, sometimes remarkable clarity that a lot of people seem to have about what they want to do. Uh, so, uh, so this is, I think, a very natural question to ask. You know, how did you get into this uh, business? And I'm going to be a little bit cliche in admitting that probably my pathway was perhaps a bit accidental as opposed to measured and planned out. Uh, so uh, I'm still uh, probably kind of, you know, finding my feet. Um, however, uh, growing up, indeed, I mean, so I grew up in, in Bangalore. I was born in Bhubaneswar, but ah. for the most part, I grew up in Bangalore. And um, I think uh, through my schooling, I, I think there was a general degree of exposure to uh, STEM-related themes. We did have some, uh, you know, fantastic uh, teachers who, uh, you know, would try to motivate a general sense of inquisitiveness and curiosity so that that really helped and I also have I think a little bit of an academic background at home so dad was a mathematician however I don't um, uh, I don't know if that so in some sense I, I did feel that there was a sense of correcting for uh, you know I think there was an awareness that uh, he probably didn't want to be too much of an influence so he wanted to make sure that I try other things so there wasn't an right. overt sense of you know let's do I mean we would do the Mobius trips and we would do the you know fun and games and um, I think there were a lot of mathy activities and you'd naturally end up encountering uh, let's say books and 
things like that that were related to the field uh, lying around at home so that was a sort of a subtle background influence but i don't think there mm-hmm. was a, there was ever a sense of uh, you know and en- specific encouragement for let's say doing or pursuing uh, math or a related field necessarily there was broad encouragement to do whatever uh, made me happy so there was this sense of go out there and explore and i did enjoy for example uh, sketching and drawing and doodling and you know mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. sort of thing i also enjoyed writing and poetry and watching films and all of that like a lot of young kids and um, so i think i had a i had a sense of attraction towards what you might call the creative arts not maybe as mm-hmm. much the performing arts unless you count public speaking which again i have to say one of our teachers early in school i think it was like again is pretty common at that stage i think i did have a lot of stage fright and nervousness and there was uh, um you know i think our hindi teacher who really kind of pushed all of us into exploring the stage and being comfortable mm-hmm. being ourselves and um i distinctly remember that there was an extempore competition where nobody was really willing to go and she was like ek bar karke to dekho and then you know ek bar maza aayega to you guys will not stop and we didn't really believe her until we actually tried it and it was a low stakes environment it was really just you know between friends uh, but you know how it is when you're a kid everything is magnified in your mind and you think it's life and death or something so we were very hesitant initially but i think there was this kind of gentle and maybe not so gentle nudging which uh, you know brought out the whatever we we i think discovered this interest thanks to her um, you know thanks to her being a little bit pushy about this so so in, in retrospect I'm, i'm very grateful uh, you know that that she uh, you know put us out there so uh, that was something that i also enjoyed very much i enjoyed debating and speaking and things like this through my college years as well so i um, my college was Mount Carmel College which was also kind of an interesting mm-hmm. choice at the time because in 11th and 12th I think a lot of us uh, do get into uh, sort of starting to think about what we really want to do with our lives and I, I wasn't really sure even by then it was a different dream every day because you know we had all these kind of uh, passing interests and you know varied interests and there wasn't anything that really felt like a very deep calling um one thing that i did consider uh, for i think a elongated period of time was journalism because it felt like it brought together in particular science journalism because i felt like it brought together uh, my by then love for writing and expression as well as a general sort of an interest in uh, science and math i thought that would be a good space you know to be in wow. and um yeah it was where, where in bangalore bangalore where, where in bangalore uh, did you grow up so yeah i mostly grew up around the newbel area so rmb ah, extension okay, okay. and so on yeah so in fact i went to uh, the bl school for the most part but then for 11th and 12th i think i switched to the kv on the iisc KV. campus so um and even i was very little we were on the isi campus for a while which is the other end of town in kengeri <laughs> so yeah so that was quite the commute for for dad for a, for a long time until he shifted to isi after um after i grew up i think so um nice. yeah so uh, so after uh, i switched to kv for my 11th and 12th i think uh, that was 
the time to decide if I wanted to, for example, prepare for the JE or prepare for one of these competitive exams that were doing the rounds. And I did know that, uh, I mean, although I was confused about many things, the one thing I had clarity about was I'm too lazy to do tuitions and, you know, it's too lazy to do this kind of disciplined uh, grind and hustle. It was not going to happen. Uh, so we thought we'll take this intermediate pathway where we will do a correspondence course. And maybe I shouldn't name the company, but there was a, the, you know, there was a fairly popular coaching entity at the time that would send you books to study. And um, mm -hmm. uh, I took one look at the books that came by post <laughs> the first <laughs> set. <laughs> and, and I think <laughs> the degree of clarity only increased as in terms of this is not, this is not for me. Or this is not something that I would be able to survive. So um, mm -hmm. the other problem was, I think, a general lack of motivation. I honestly didn't know what engineering was really all about. And in retrospect, mm -hmm. I think if I had some of the, I think now funky, uh, you know, uh, material around explaining what some of these professions are about, right? Now there's a lot of exposure. You can probably spend some time on YouTube to find out, you know, what does a typical say, you know, if you're a material scientist or you're a civil engineer or you are, a, you know, an electrical engineer, what do you typically do? I think that question's probably better answered in these times if you go looking for answers. However, uh, back in the day, I, I think I, okay, I mean, to be fair, I could have probably worked harder on finding out, but there wasn't uh, there wasn't information that was passively handy about what all of this entails. So just generally speaking, there was a sense that engineering is something everybody must mm. do it. So it's either that or you're a doctor or maybe a lawyer. These are your top three in the sort of the Indian society. And I think I was one of those rebels without a cause. Like I wanted to <laughs> you know, do something different just for like, I don't know why, but it's it just has to be. I was probably too lazy to do what everybody was doing at the time. So, uh, so I kind of and and those uh, correspondence materials certainly put the last nail in the coffin. I was like, there's no way that I'm going through. Uh, I'm going through all of this training for something that I don't even know. Uh, you know, as to what it's going to be about. Uh, so, uh, so that that was, I think, became pretty clear early in 11th that my um, academic aspirations in terms of the competitive exams and so on were very limited. I wasn't really planning to explore any of that. Um, and like I said, instead, I just kind of did this free form exploration of various random things. And like I said, it did feel at the time that, that science journalism was a good space to be. I was reading a decent amount of popular science, which I think at the time was, and maybe even now, is largely dominated by physics and then closely followed by math, maybe. And um, I think thanks to Quanta and some other platforms that are coming up now, probably seeing more of a presence from emerging fields like computer science and other younger sciences as well. However, back then, I think uh, physics was very attractive because of how, how nice it looked in the popular science books. But back in the classroom, again, mm -hmm. it turned out to be that, uh, you know, I did feel like uh, it wasn't, I felt like I was in the space where I probably not be a physicist, but maybe I can be somebody who is able to understand enough of it to be able to bring it to a broader audience. So it felt like that was uh, that was a good goal to have. And it turned out that Mount Carmel does have a very nice journalism 
our department and program, and yeah. it was conveniently close to home, relatively speaking. In Bangalore, everything's a little bit far off if you <laughs> measure it in terms of traffic, but at yeah, least yeah. Uh, at least it was closer home than going to a different city or whatever. So uh, it seemed like a pretty natural choice at a time. And so I kind of uh, learned that they also have an exam, which was, uh, uh, I think, competitive on its own right. And I was just beginning to explore those options. But then I think we had a little bit of a conversation around this at home. And we arrived at the conclusion that if I decided to switch back to STEM after a degree in journalism and after starting a career in journalism, and let's say I had a change of heart or a change of mind and wanted to come back to experiment with a STEM career, that would be much harder than the other way around. It's typically easier to establish some basic credibility in some STEM field and then try to do the exposition on top of it. So um, we figured that 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 would be the more, um, that that would be the more robust way of going about this. And uh, I I do feel like I still have to close that loop on, you know, to go back and probably do, I, I, I mean, doing something like science journalism full-time is something that's always at the back of my mind. But uh, Mm -hmm. I think I do manage to um, feed into that that desire by doing, you know, whatever little I do in terms of, um, you know, whether it's blogging or doing uh, talks that are intended for a broader audience and things like that. So I managed to let that energy out a little bit in these forms. Uh, But as it turns out, I mean, I instead of doing or uh, attempting even journalism, I signed up for um, a three-major course uh, at Mount Carmel, which was mathematics, computer science, and statistics. Which, in retrospect, is a pretty solid combination. Like today, yeah. that would be that would be a pretty, a pretty good set of topics to to study in terms of you know. Uh, what's popular and so on Uh, but I was doing it before it was cool (laughs) to be doing Mm, this mm, particular mm. combination Um, and it was it was a really nice experience I think Mount's uh, uh, you know it was we we had we had a pretty good experience in the classroom and also beyond I think we had a really solid debate team for example it was really fun being a part of that experience um, we had a literature club of which I have uh, very fond memories again so you could explore the some of the extracurricular aspects that you wanted to um, in in a nice way so so that that was a lot of fun and um, I think we had actually a pretty reasonable syllabus. And I say this because it was enough for me to get through the only two entrance exams that I finally wrote in my life, which took me mm-hmm. to um, uh, sort of a direct PhD admission at, um, at IMSC. Um, and uh, that, that was, I think, a bit unusual at the time because after a three-year BSc, normally you would probably, I wasn't even eligible to write GATE. So normally you would mm-hmm. do an MSc and write GATE or you would try to apply to an MTech program or something like this. Uh, but fortunately, JEST um, and uh, TIFR Center for Applied Math in Bangalore, and I think the IISC Math Department, these were the three places that I found that said, we have our own entrance exam. We don't care about your qualifications. Mm. As long as you can get through the exam and you get through the interview, we're happy to have you. So that was their approach. They didn't the eligibility requirements didn't cut me out. So I think I got through two of those. And uh, I mean, um, I interviewed at TIFR CAM and uh, Math Science. 
Um, and then I had to choose between doing partial differential equations for seven years and doing <laughs> computer science and uh, partial differential equations in Bangalore. So that was a big temptation. But, um, but I think I finally got... I finally got intimidated by the prospect of doing too many differential equations. I was never good at that that sort of thinking. It was never very intuitive for me. I have like mad respect for people who uh, were able to uh, do that sort of thing. It's amazing to me. But but for me, that wasn't, it's just not how whatever brains I have are wired. It's not, um, mm -hmm. it, it uh, if the the syllabus at the time felt a little too intimidating, and math science seemed like um, there was a larger variety of possibilities, and it seemed more familiar. So, so those were the those were the choices that I made, and I think um, and I think a big influence going back to your question of you know how did it click? I mean, like I said. A lot of this was just path of least resistance and, you know, being lazy about life and saying that, okay, let's just, let's just go with some concept of instinct and, you know, whatever works. Uh, but also, I think I, uh, somebody gifted me a book called The Man Who Loved Only Numbers, which mm -hmm. is a biography of uh, Paul Erdős. Hopefully, I'm not messing yes. up the pronunciation. He's a very yeah. famous very adorable Hungarian mathematician mm -hmm. um, and has a totally crazy life story. <laughs> and somehow I think uh, that, that that book um, it really made an impact at the time that I encountered it. Um, I, I was like, what is it about combinatorics and discrete math that can make a man fall so in love with it? And mm -hmm. then I got really curious. I was like, I have to find out more. Um, about this stuff because there was an implication that there's a sort of a beauty to these arguments which really deserves to be sought out. So I think there was a certain degree of curiosity that got to me and then I found um, a textbook called Concrete Mathematics which was also beautifully written. Um, I think that would be Graham, Patashnik and Knuth. Uh, very, very uh, well-known book again, and very beautifully mm. written. So I think encountering those two books during college made um, made a big difference in steering me towards thinking about doing math for a bit longer, doing computer science for a bit longer, before going back to the plan B of doing uh, mm -hmm. full-time journalism. I thought, well, but yeah, let's just try this out for a little bit longer. And then that little bit longer kept going, you know, and uh, here we are, basically. I just... Uh, and still exploring. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Fantastic description, uh, Neil Dara. Uh, in fact, I'm going to go into some specifics of this whole thing. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a really, you know, a very interesting journey. A uh, few specific points uh, is that, that you already had some kind of an environment within, within uh, your home, which was very encouraging. Uh, given the fact that you were, uh, your parents were also kind of associated with academics. Uh, how, was, uh, how, was, uh, how was the environment at home? Uh, what kind of uh, discussions, what kind of uh, interactions you had uh, with your parents? Of course, any child and parent would have a, a normal kind of interaction. But for example, hypothetically, if you are on a dinner table, was was science uh, on the plate, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great question. I 
think. <laughs> but I mean, I do remember uh, science being on the plate often enough, but not to the point where it was an exclusive. Like, I don't think we were an out and out nerdy family. I mean, my mom has a background in physics. So I think some of my interest in physics is a mix of, I think, you know, uh, probably some of the popular science books we had in physics was probably from her collection. Um, I nice. think she had the Feynman lectures very nicely bound from her college days. And, you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and I think the original Halliday Resnick before it got all, you know, glamorized, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, so so uh, yellow pages and like, you know, nice musty smell. So it's, you know, I think that that, 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 that was... Uh, uh, that was from her side of the uh, collection. And um, I, I think we would tend to have broader conversations, I think, by design, because they were probably a little paranoid about, you know, being an overt influence and not wanting to be like, you know, uh, that that, uh, that she didn't have a chance to explore other things because she got, you know, overly um, influenced by what was at home. And uh, so I think I do remember also conversations about, you know, art and film and things like that, which is probably where some of those interests mm-hmm. came about mm-hmm. from as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I think we would uh, we would do like these little activities. I, I do remember them getting a lot of these experiment kits and STEM activity mm-hmm. kits and so on. And again, this was probably a little bit pre-internet. So all of this was, you know, kind of, hands-on and you know you would think you are so all of the I guess the standard things where you try to um, I don't know like boil water in a paper cup using a candle or like these little things where something that does inspire a little bit of awe and amazement and uh, that feels a little magical and makes you wonder huh how did that happen and uh Something at some point for someone is going to trigger this thing about I'm so madly curious about it that I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to figure this out, whatever it takes. And you know, it probably takes you to a rabbit hole that goes as deep as a PhD or something. So, uh, so I think some of those trigger points were set up not with a lot of intention or planning, but just, you know, just because that felt like... Um, the natural thing to do at home, but um, but I think uh, we also I think spent a lot of time discussing um, uh, you know trajectories because I think I was so confused in general about because everything felt attractive I wasn't able to uh, I wasn't able to discard options easily saying mm-hmm. that would not happen until um, I mean sometimes it would happen if I got sufficiently intimidated by something so I think. I dropped, um, uh, so, so I think we had lots of choices at Mount Carmel, and I think it was a tough but conscious decision for me to not continue studying physics, because not mm-hmm. because I wasn't interested anymore. In fact, it was probably the thing that I've been intrigued by the most through childhood, but I think I just realized that the the math was getting to me, and I wasn't, um, you know, it was probably not, um, uh, I would probably not have as much fun with with it as I, I was hoping to based on uh, based on just the popular reads and uh, it's possible that maybe it wasn't the best decision you'd never know but uh, but I think some of the eliminations that have happened have happened because I eventually got you know scared out of something and some of these things also evolved for example growing up I was never very good at puzzles and I would kind of I had a lot of smart friends and mm-hmm. they would often uh, have the key insights that these puzzles mm. demanded faster than I would, right? And uh, 
that would be i mean i'm i'm not naturally competitive but at the same time i'm like you know i would look at these people and be like okay maybe this is not for me because mm. um i'm clearly not getting it as as quickly as i'm supposed to but now in like my old age i'm happy to say that you know <laughs> i can now not have to worry about time or being faster time. than anyone and so on and now i get to you know enjoy puzzles like maybe somebody would enjoy wine or something like nice and slow and just take your time appreciating um the different moving parts and take your time thinking about it and you know they actually turn out to be fun so i think i discarded them prematurely and uh, now i'm beginning to i'm beginning to enjoy them again so so i think some of the math also that i used to be scared of in college um i'm having to encounter it again for various reasons i'm like ha huh, this is not so bad it's not as bad as i thought it was yes. so so some of this is like i'm revisiting assumptions that i made i'm revisiting and i mean you know maybe maybe you also evolve and become a little more um either a little more mature or you have now the tools to appreciate things that you didn't mm-hmm. before you have the confidence or you have the leisure because now i'm not trying to do anything to uh prove anything to anyone i don't have to do it under you know a, a clock i can take my time so i think all of that also makes a difference probably so yes yeah, so things evolve but i think i sidetracked my original question i think which was about conversations at home but kind of i think it was a mix we did have a fair amount of you know science math typical nerdy goofiness but mm-hmm. uh we also did um you know uh, one thing i regret not doing more of is picking up like normal things like cooking and so on i was just i think i was very accident prone so i was i think <laughs> i was just afraid of doing very concrete damage whenever i went into the kitchen so so i had a good reason to mostly stay out but i you know that's something that probably i would uh you know if i could go back and do more of something i would probably do a little more of that uh but on the other hand because i think both my parents uh really enjoy uh the process of cooking and i think i'm now reading masala lab which is about the science uh-huh. of cooking and, you yes, know and yes. like yeah there is so much coolness to all this and it's just like <laughs> a dimension of life that i happily completely missed out on and again it's one of those rediscoveries right and now fortunately um my situation is such that i'm staying with my parents now uh mm-hmm. so uh dad recently retired and he is um mm-hmm. he's joined us on the on the iit gandhinagar campus um oh, nice. and my <laughs> yeah and and my mom always stays with me because between if she has to choose between me and dad because i can't cook <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a easy choice for who needs the support so 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 her default has always been uh you know to for us to be together and now that uh, post retirement dad is back now it feels like um you know the the whole childhood phase all over again and that's a great deal uh-huh. of fun. nice and um it's actually similar even now i think we we geek out on uh some common interests and like we watch we'd probably watch like a why hat or a number file video every now and then and sometimes uh-huh. we probably watch an episode of sarafai it you know <laughs> so uh, so there's like all of these kind of common interests which are fairly broad spectrum and uh, whatever makes for i think we optimize for happiness at the dinner table because it's just this is too much uh, i mean the world is a sad sad place as it is so we just try to <laughs> we just try to chill a little bit if we can so that's that's what we try to optimize for if, if possible <laughs> wonderful wonderful 
in fact uh, the key aspect uh, what you also just mentioned about uh, the fact that you have uh, these kind of uh, interactions need not be pushed in the sense uh, it can be organic so to speak right which is uh, very critical the other aspect which i am always intrigued and i always wanted to ask you is uh, there is a way especially in india to enter into computer science which is the stream of uh, engineering here you are uh, who is uh, deeply kind of embedded in sciences science mathematics and uh, you are now converging towards uh, a kind of a career in computer science especially in terms of the academic career right and uh, this is a generally an unconventional route for people who who want to get into computer science and in my opinion should be explored and also ventured more than the conventional uh, computer engineering viewpoint uh, so before we really go into the specifics of the research aspect itself which we're going to uh, kind of uh, discuss later i want to know how did this uh, emerge out of your your foundational education especially if you are now looking at these things from let's say conventional uh, mathematics statistics uh, uh, viewpoint and then you switch over slowly to to computer science which actually is the foundation on which <laughs> built right how did this happen because this is something which uh, i i'm i'm myself curious about and second thing is probably surely it would be of interest to a lot of other people right so i think uh, yeah that's a great point i think this has been a little bit unconventional again not mostly in retrospect not by design oh, yeah, yeah. but i think i ended up in um, in fact at imsc the department is even called theoretical computer science uh, just to really <laughs> yeah. be very clear that uh, you know that the focus is on is on the theoretical aspects where um, it's a branch of computer science that's basically if you look at it from a distance um, and again i think this is going to be a little bit subjective not mm-hmm. formally accurate but i would say from a certain perspective it's almost indistinguishable from math in terms of style mm-hmm. right in terms of um what we do i mean of course like i said i don't know if mathematicians will necessarily um agree but i think we have seen um if i remember correctly even the abel prize which is traditionally a prize in math go out to people mm-hmm. who identify as computer scientists of late uh, so i think there is an increasing acknowledgement that um, you know uh, theoretical computer science is um in 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 terms of style of operation is really mm-hmm. a lot like is a lot like math so it wasn't uh, um i guess that that much of a of a transition uh coming in from the kind of training that i had um through uh through mounts um and i think there are other aspects of computer science where again the the science element um so people who are working for example on Uh, certain perspectives of quantum computing quantum information mm-hmm. often come from a basic sciences perspective get interested in applications and uh, you know start contributing to the field i think there are probably a lot of crossovers of that that kind coming from uh, you know people coming in from physics and getting interested in fundamental issues around quantum computing uh, so so that's another inroad uh, that that would be pretty common um so uh, for me yeah i think the 
Uh, I, th I think it was funny because when I came to IISC to do my postdoc, which was the first thing I did after the PhD, um, mm -hmm. I didn't even, I mean, okay, this was, of course, also me being extremely naive and not having really bothered to look around um, beyond whatever I was I was doing during my PhD. But then I think to to realize that there's so much more to the, to the field of mm -hmm. computer science, I mean, the engineering uh, verticals, right? And there's so much going on in terms of... Uh, um, in terms of people working at every layer, starting from, you know, this is the hardware aspects, um, um, you know, this, uh, the kind of work that goes on in programming languages, et cetera, et cetera. All of it was, uh, yeah, it was all very novel because, I mean, it's not that you, you're not aware of these uh, things, but the, the perspective has always been very pen and paper. And so to see people working on the actual things, so a lot of theoretical computer science is about the philosophy's abstraction. We want to think about models. We want to think about, uh, you know, the, the power and the limit of computation in a way that is not machine dependent. And that's a very deliberate choice because we don't want to be changing our theories every time a new microprocessor comes in the market. We want to we want to have theories that kind of last and you know are uh, are not subject to whatever is the current uh, development in the, in the real world, and so it's it's a more it's certainly a more abstract perspective. But of course, there are people who really care about you know optimizing the current state of the art, the current benchmarks. And it's a whole different style of thinking. It's a whole different style of doing things. And all of that was like major news to me. I was like, okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, I thought all of this was, um, yeah, I mean, um, of course, I knew that in principle, um, you know, people must be working on these things, but to actually have colleagues and friends who, who are doing this stuff in their labs, I was like, yeah, I was like a kid in a candy store. I was like very, very pleased <laughs> to find myself amongst engineering folks doing all these cool things. And I was like, yeah, more power to you uh, for, for actually, um, you know, getting things done and bringing us the technology that, that makes things happen. So I have um, massive respect for people who work on the engineering side of the spectrum. I think the kinds of challenges that they have to contend with um, are of a different flavor. And uh, mm -hmm. they, they um, um, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I do think, and I think a lot of people do hold this point of view that I think theory and practice go hand in hand. And uh, we probably need to talk to each other a little more as uh, communities. I think I'm sure... This is also the case for, you know, other basic sciences where, you know, you're looking Absolutely. at, you know, I mean, all the all the jokes apart, which, of course, we love to make on each other. <laughs> I think it's just uh, it's very fruitful and productive when, you know, people take a little bit of time to learn each other's languages, to learn each other's ways of thinking, constraints and so on, um, even cultures and styles, and then do a little bit of adaptation and have more conversations. I think it's always great when that happens. So um, and, and I think both communities benefit when they when they talk to each other more. So, yeah, very, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah, because uh, that that's an important thing. Uh, uh, most of the time, this these divisions are artificial, and uh, therefore, uh, and majority of the problems which we tend to uh, attack, even within the framework of academic research, needs uh, assistance from uh, various different viewpoints. And, no, absolutely, uh, yeah. So I think I was just watching a documentary about uh, the the LIGO uh, the the collider and how it was yeah. built, and it's you know it's 
it's such an engineering marvel and it's such a you know it's a collaboration where the the scale of everything is unimaginable but all of it is in the service of if i understand correctly questions that are very fundamental and theoretical in yeah. their nature yeah. so i think it's just like a really beautiful example of uh, you know things kind of coming together and i think uh, um so it's it's clearly possible and uh, you know more of that would be would be nice to have in general yeah. wonderful wonderful so uh, having a bit of knowledge about uh, mount carmel's college of course it's a women only college if i'm correct right. uh, because i grew up in uh, in, in ba- uh, bangalore current day bengaluru right. <laughs> i right. i uh, i was mainly from uh, the malayalam rajajinagar kind of okay yeah. right is ms college is where i i did my oh stuff. that's lovely so, yeah Uh, i but i have a lot of uh, you know regards for uh, mount carmel's because uh, the people who have emerged out of that college uh, a lot of them uh, in the public forum uh, have uh, done very good stuff and uh, there is something really good about that kind of an education although it's a kind of a, a you know a single gender uh, college if i am correct uh would you want to just elaborate uh, your experience in that uh, college uh, and how did all, how did it also assist you to to uh, to develop your interest and uh, uh, and whatever you learned there and things like that yeah i mean i think it is indeed a, it is a women's college um mm. and i think it has been an um i believe that's the case even now we recently had a celebration of 75 years of mounts and uh, you know mm-hmm. a lot of the alumni came together recently i was kind of special being back there just um, I, i think about a year ago it was probably december last year that that mm-hmm. we were all around it was a celebration of like you said um, you know people who have also come out of that system i was really nice to see the variety of people i mean yeah. starting from sports to journalism to um you know um academics and uh, everything in between there were there were like lots of uh, i think bureaucrats you know all all, all sorts of uh, fields i think people have made a mark and uh, uh, it's really been um you know inspiring to see um the that that, that kind of outcome uh, i would say there was a fairly um Uh, you know like i said it was an enriching experience because there there was this broad based focus it wasn't um, um i i guess we all know that mounts is not necessarily known for its sort of intellectual throughput and uh, you know that's probably uh, not not a very specific priority or not not what they're particularly known for but like i said i think i lucked out in the classroom i think we had i mean more than um i suppose more than you know precision and accuracy and i guess we could talk a lot about pedagogy separately i mm-hmm. think what matters is having people in the classroom who care who care about yeah. you know, absolutely students yeah. and i think we were very lucky to have folks like that and uh, you know mm-hmm. i could i mean one of the things that i think is a pretty common complaint in the indian education system or culture is this thing about not having enough encouragement for people to be asking questions to be comfortable mm-hmm. asking questions and it's usually you know a bit of a monologue people come and say their thing or you know basically read out what's in a textbook and mm-hmm. uh you know you just have to take it in without uh, uh you know without having a dialogue without having a conversation and for me by and large this was not the case at mounts i think i was probably also a particularly annoying student like a you know mm-hmm. kind of a uh nosy front bencher who would have all these kind of you know um 
uh, nagging questions every now and then. And uh, I think I had a lot of space for doing that. I never, I never got told off for, um, you know, I don't, I mean, it wasn't maybe always the case that there were answers, but there was always encouragement for, you know, just keep asking those questions to the extent mm-hmm. that we can, we will try to address it now. Otherwise, we'll try to take it offline. And I thought that was a wonderful spirit. And that way I felt like not uh, not scared to ask, which was, I think, a really a crucial uh, thing culturally. So it's possible that maybe, you know, there was unis B, so plus minus epsilon and let's say the actual math that was taught, you probably learn more math if you went to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a fancier college or whatever. But but I think in terms of overall, um, uh, the, the overall culture of um, being curious and not being afraid to speak up, I think that that mm-hmm. was kind of there almost as a matter of culture. So, um, yes. and, you know, that that's just, I think I was very lucky with all the teachers that I had. And I think... Uh, also, the non-STEM uh, portions, the mm. the English, and the, the and there was a there, there was a lot of uh, you know I, I I think the English department was absolutely awesome, and uh, mm. I think uh, one of the uh, one of the teachers there was also running the debate club. One of them was involved in the literature club, and like I was saying, I spent a lot of time at both of those outfits and uh, so I remember I remember that also with a lot of fondness I think uh, the stories you tell and the kind of um, you know images you build I think I think mm-hmm. all of that kind of you know uh, builds into your worldview subtly mm-hmm. and uh, all of it helps and um, I think also I mean college is where you make lasting friendships and, um, you know, I think I was, uh, I mean, I couldn't probably relate to every aspect of what everyone was up to. I think as, um, again, is probably well known, Mounts probably does have um, a lot of emphasis also on, like I said, performing arts, song and dance mm-hmm. and music and uh, fashion and all of that. And some of that, I just don't have the eyes for it. I don't have the taste for it. So I couldn't necessarily understand everything that was happening, but I was like, okay, this is... Uh, uh, it's just nice to have that kind of exposure and to say that, okay, I mean, you know, there's there are all of these possibilities and uh, they're mm-hmm. good to know. And um, it was always fun. Uh, some of it, like I said, some the things that I could relate to, I did more of. Things that I couldn't understand, I would just be a cheerleader, uh, you know, uh, on, uh, you know. Uh, on the periphery and uh, you know just soak it in it was it was a really good uh, good environment to be in which I I don't know that we actually expected it to pan out that way because uh, you know we didn't we didn't know what to expect but it did uh, in in retrospect I think uh, it turned out to be like really fun uh, fun years and those are crucial years because you're kind of developmental stages of life and uh, and yeah, so I think a lot of the college experiences, I think, made by the peer group you're with and the teachers that you mm. encounter. And I think the rest of it in terms of, you know, uh, the rankings and all the other externalities, I think, sort of fade away compared to, you oh. know, the people that you're hanging out with, right? Because they make such a big part of your experience. So for me, I think, and that is something that you can't control. Uh, so uh, you just have Absolutely. to kind of hope for the best. And um, yeah, so for me, like I said, I think it's very fortunate. I think I had uh, a great group of people that I crossed paths with at the time. And it set me up for, you know, knowingly or unknowingly, it set me up with a, with 
a really good uh, foundation i think wonderful wonderful you also mentioned uh, during this uh, part of the conversation that uh, you are still interested in journalism which is a very fascinating uh, thing because uh, you may have already seen there is a lot of activity especially in india nowadays where there is a concrete effort made to uh, bring in science science journalism together right and uh, there has i i've also been uh, uh, reading and hearing about uh, the sci uh, journal uh, kind of uh, activities and also right. a conference which recently happened right. many in interesting the efforts uh, organized yeah. yeah 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 there are a lot of efforts being made and uh, w- how how are you uh, kind of uh, interested in that aspect what kind of thing are you interested in 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 uh, in terms of bringing journalism and science together or you're per se interested only in the journalism what is the kind of inclination you have right so no i think i'm definitely interested in the um, the journalistic aspects of um, of communicating science because i mean yes. bro- broader journalism i think is it's a massive responsibility and yeah. that's the um, that's i think a little above my pay grade i mean there's a lot going on mm-hmm. and um, i think I, i again fortunate to know people who are involved in uh, mainstream journalism and um, that's that's a very tough world out there even mm-hmm. more so with all the recent technological advancements that we are seeing oh, yeah. uh, it's it's just harder and harder to keep things real and to keep things uh, balanced and it's it's very hard to probably heading into times where you know it's it's going to become harder and harder to even know what's for real so journalists have mm. i think immense responsibility for you know just even being able to bring out what's happening is not as easy anymore like when i was growing up journalism for me was like you know being an anchor on doordarshan and saying ki you know aaj ka samachar is you know really what happened and you know it was uh, arguably simpler times you know in a certain sense but now it's all uh, it's all one hot mess and you know uh, i i don't even understand um, you know what it takes to be um, you know a mainstream journalist anymore however i mean i don't even know if i'm using these terms correctly but the way i perceive science journalism is to you know yeah bring out um uh bring out developments in science in a way that um uh, makes sense to a broader public and that they mm-hmm. can have a you know general appreciation of uh what directions things are headed what are the developments that are happening and so on and uh what's closer to maybe the kinds of things that i actually do is probably to take some of uh, my own work or other people's work that i'm excited about and that i managed to understand a little bit of and i want to break that down and try to express mm-hmm. it in ways that people who are prospective researchers who want to probably think about mm-hmm. you know doing this sort of thing uh for a longer time hopefully these are hooks for them to kind hooks. of get interested yeah. right so creating those uh, hooks and putting them out there uh in a way that hopefully people with fairly minimum background can still mm-hmm. find accessible that's that's the kind of work that that uh, i get involved in uh, i realize that science journalism is is of course a broader playing field and i'm mm-hmm. not very directly involved but again very lucky to have uh, you know mostly through platforms like twitter etc having yeah, uh, yeah. known people who are involved in that sort of thing who are doing great work mm-hmm. and especially i think through the uh pandemic years that we lived through recently i think we saw how important it was for you know these folks to really step up and try to fight the misinformation out there and it wasn't even i think there was 
and maybe even to some extent, even to this day, I mean, even the scientists are kind of figuring out what's what's going mm. on. So it's not like anything is really written in stone because things are developing, uh, you know, at such a rapid pace. So, uh, so there are people who are at the absolute frontier of, you know, what, what we know and who are trying to keep up with the pace of development, creating new knowledge, and doing all of these really challenging experiments and all of that. But then there are the, the people who communicate this to, you know, the uh, janta at large, and they have this challenging job of keeping up with the developments and then mm. also making it palatable to, to everyone. And then potentially, especially with sensitive topics, like whether it's, you know, um, vaccinations or masks mm. or whatever else, sometimes they also have a very personal cost with this communication because yeah. there's yeah. a lot of these issues these days quickly get politicized. You have, mm. you know, uh, for even saying something that would otherwise be fairly benign and simple, you know, you sometimes get a backlash, you know, you have, um, you run into uh, maybe hostile WhatsApp groups, who knows, mm. right? So I think your yeah. job as a as a communicator to the broad public, I think is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really hard thing to do. And at the same time, you also don't want to, um, you know, misrepresent the science. Sometimes honest mistakes can happen, or sometimes there can be a misunderstanding of a technical detail. And yeah. uh, so it's, it's a really, um, you know, it's, it's a really complex uh, scenario, but more power to people who are navigating it. I think um, IMSC, in fact, hosted an early version of this sort of a science journalist uh, journalists conference a few years ago and I think that was again um, you know uh, so, so I think the videos are up on the IMSC channel one of the nice things about the IMSC YouTube channel is that they have uh, you know that they have a lot of material from all the cool events that mm. happen on campus so uh, so I remember going over some of those panel discussions and uh, you know being being really inspired by like you said all the work that's happening in terms of you mm. know uh, this whole community coming together. And I think a lot of younger people are now more uh, probably feeling more encouraged to get into this because get they see it. it as a viable career path. I mean, to be honest, to be practical, you need to be sure that this is something that you can actually make a living mm. out of also. Mm. And I think, to be honest, that probably remains a bit of a challenge even now, but even less now. so less so than it was probably 10 years ago, because 10 years ago, you probably didn't even have role models to look up to necessarily. Yeah, and now at least that has changed. And some of the emergent role models are vocal about some of these issues, which I think is really nice. So I think there's a bright future for this community. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope to, you know, continue uh, supporting this phenomenon in whatever way I can, and, you know, maybe even being more involved as we go along. So, yeah. Mm. Very nice, very nice, excellent. So, uh, since you also kind of dovetailed into into the IMSC aspect, I am now going to now <laughs> right away get into that aspect of your your life where you make a transition from uh, from Mount Carmel's to IMSC. How was that transition, and how did that happen? Yeah, that was hard. I don't think <laughs> I knew what I was in for because. IMSC was a whole new level of uh, rigor and, um, mm. you know, um, the, the, the coursework was, um, I think the character of it was just completely different mm. from what one was used to. And I don't think this is like a Mounts versus IMSC thing. It's just mm. 
the phase transition that happens when you go from undergraduate level education mm. to postgraduate education. So, um, so I think probably anybody would feel uh, a little bit of a jitter when they make that transition. But for mm. me, it was probably more pronounced um, than average because I probably had just bungled up a lot of my fundamental training. <laughs> so I was uh, I was very quickly very lost. I mean, the first semester was a complete roller coaster. And uh, because everything looked so enticing, I think I'd signed up for way more courses than was reasonable. And I dropped out of a bunch of them because I, I don't think anybody even told me because I think their attitude was that Khudi Samajayagi, let's not make it <laughs> let's not make it look like we are stopping her from taking like nine courses a semester or whatever. It's like totally outrageous. I don't think like so I don't think I had any idea what I was in for. And then I think I had to like quietly start dropping out of like just stop going to classrooms and uh, you know. Uh, so that was a bit of an awkward an awkward, bumpy first semester, was just trying to figure out what, what's even going so you, on. So you entered the program of of integrated PhD, I suppose, Technically, right? that would be the integrated PhD, yes. Yeah. So I think I had a master's um, but along the way. And yeah. um, I mean, it, it's still something that got done in a five-year period for me. Uh, again, fortunately, the timing sort of worked out. Although in yeah. retrospect, yeah. I think it would have been nicer to have a less chaotic <laughs> transition and just do it a bit aramse you know i don't um, i don't even know what the rush was all about really i mean so mm. so i think um, uh, getting a little bit of a breather and um, having a little more um, uh, you know giving giving myself more time to do um, mm. the the foundational training at the masters level uh, would have would have probably been nice but you know, it is what it is. Um, mad science basically happened. And uh, yeah, so that was, uh, that was, I think, a couple of semesters of pretty crazy coursework during which you also had to figure out, you know, whom you wanted to work with, you had to narrow down on an area. And now it was the same problem that I had, like, so, like I said, I'm just generally a confused person. So uh, everything seemed very attractive. And there was, uh, uh, the, there was no way that I would zero in on something easily but uh, again the elimination was by intimidation turned out that there was only one course where i felt like i could actually follow what was going on and yeah. so that was uh, that was what i uh, finally um, I finally ended up working on mostly algorithms uh, the other courses were um, well they were beautiful and they were challenging in their own ways but i didn't um, i didn't feel like i could um, I could actually survive them in a in a in a more drawn out intense fashion. So mm -hmm. I I, mm -hmm. I figured the rest of it I will be happy to uh, view as a spectator. But if it's something where you know the expectation is that you you actually um, you know uh, you actually hope to be at a point where you can create your own ideas of the sort, I I didn't either. There was um, when I was doing algorithms, I felt like yeah maybe this is something where there might be like the smallest of chances that this is even feasible. Uh, everything else just uh, just looked too scary. So um, so at least from my point of view. And um, that's that's how, um, that's how I ended up working with uh, Venkatesh and um, Sakit. So Sakit was, a, uh, was, I think, a final year PhD student about the time that I joined. So he was, mm -hmm. um, he was fairly uh, senior at the time, but we ended up 
talking quite a bit and working on several projects together. And um, I was very happy that I think he joined IMSC's faculty um, just in time for me to say that he's co-advisor officially. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so, so he joined back before I graduated. So that's uh, I was uh, you know nice bit of closure and full circle. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's how that worked out. So could you, could you please describe briefly about your uh, PhD problem? What did you work on? And, uh, well, so I worked on uh, the broad area is graph algorithms and. Um, we, uh, so graphs is in networks, just to clarify. So, uh, mm-hmm. so the kind of graphs we are thinking about is entities and relationships. So we have, uh, which we normally call vertices and edges. Um, so we have a bunch of entities and we we look at them pairwise and we relate them if um, we have a reason to relate them. So it depends on the situation you're modeling. So you could think about, um, you know, the Twitter graph, where every Twitter user is an entity and two of them are related if they follow each other. Uh, you could mm-hmm. have oriented relationships where one user is related to another one if they if they follow them. So these could be mm-hmm. represented that there's an inherent directionality to it. And um, so that those are the kind of objects that we deal with. And um, uh, because graphs model so many things, they model things like road networks, protein-protein interaction mm-hmm. networks, mm-hmm. they model airflow control, all kinds of things, right? So so they're basically ubiquitous. Once you start thinking about graphs, you basically see them everywhere. And it turns out that a lot of real-world problems can actually be modeled as uh, things that you're trying to do with a graph. Uh, for example, Google Maps tries to figure out how to take you from point A to point B on a road network in the fastest possible way, the shortest possible route. So that's, again, a classic fundamental graph optimization problem. Now, it turns out that while, you know, you typically under most circumstances, finding the shortest paths are easy to do, some problems on graphs are such that, you know, we can't really, we can't really solve them as quickly as we would like to. But if the graphs happen to have some simple structure, then you can. You can exploit that structure and solve these problems easily. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, so, so having a structured graph in your hand is always nice to have. So if, you, if you're lucky, your graph already is kind of nice and simple. Maybe it looks like a grid or maybe it looks like a path or it looks like a ladder. So then, you know, these kinds of nice graphs are usually easy to deal with and whatever problem you're trying to solve, uh, you know, usually can be solved easily. But if your graph is like spaghetti, it's just a big mess, then usually it's complicated and then uh, your problems are not as easy to solve. So the thing that we were looking at is if you're given an arbitrary general structure, which is a mess, is there some way that you can find a little bit that you can remove so that the rest of it falls flat and has a nice structure? So nice. can we find can we find a little bit of noise that we can hopefully ex, you know surgically remove from the system so that the rest mm-hmm. of it becomes kind of nice and uh, that in itself as a meta problem is also a hard problem mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. turns out that there are ways in which you know you can sort of work around it and you can make some progress that's actually meaningful and useful so again Unfortunately, we didn't get to the point where we were implementing the algorithms that we came up with in actual code, but we did have um, we did have a lot of uh, sort of theoretical claims about things that you could do to make graphs simpler, and uh, we we 
prove things in a fairly general framework. So for fairly general notions of what it means for a graph to be simple and general notions of what it means to remove or eliminate a small amount of noise, uh, we were mm -hmm. able to say things that were hopefully useful. So that, that was the kind of the broad theme of what I was doing during mm -hmm. my PhD. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. So uh, this is a very interesting phase where you're also trying to uh, kind of, you know, look out for problems and probably venturing into some kind of open questions within your, your research area. And you probably also would have tasted a little bit of uh, independence in terms of working on research problems. Right. Uh, and uh, overall, how was your PhD experience? Because... Uh, Generally, one tends to uh, hear a lot about uh, a B.Tech in computer science, as we were talking about. Right. But a right. kind of a Ph.D. in computer science, especially theoretical computer science. Yeah. Uh, what is the general experience? Uh, what has been your thought on thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think I mean I guess there's a lot of variation in terms of um, you know how you are temperamentally and you know how mm. uh, what the group is like or the people are like whom you're working with. Again, I had. Um, I think a lot of luck on my side because my, working at math science was just uh, an absolute um, blast. I mean, it, it was a wonderful group to be with. Um, mm -hmm. Venkatesh had nurtured this really, um, really amazing environment, which was very collaborative, which was very open. Uh, math science has this um, culture of coffee hours. <laughs> so we have a couple mm -hmm. of coffee hours, um, you know, every day. Some of them are pre or post seminars. Uh, so we, we have a lot of uh, opportunities to sort of um, meet up with people beyond the immediate group. The immediate group would also mm. meet up, uh, you know, every so often. And we were all basically spread across the same corridor. We were kind of around all the time. Uh, so it was, um, uh, it was a really, I think, um, uh, happening sort of an environment, a lot of mm. good discussions, a lot of sparks flying, a lot of fights. Uh, do remember it as being uh, sort of intense, but in a good way, like a happy sort of intensity and, and, and everybody being very sort of open um, to discussions. There's no silly questions. I never felt, mm. again, this environment where you don't feel intimidated to ask is, is mm. wonderful. So I think I've, like, I've asked all kinds of like silly and stupid <laughs> questions without having to you know, worry about whether my reputation is taking a hit or whether, you know, because everyone's really very, very friendly and we were all kind of, you know, I was a very happy space. And I think a lot of credit to, I think, all the faculty at Math Science for nurturing that sort of, a, you know, that sort of a beautiful environment. And um, yeah, all of us, I think the peers, the juniors, the seniors, uh, everybody that I overlapped with, uh, it was it was basically great fun. And um, I think, um, yeah, we would have also during summers a tradition of a summer program where undergraduates would come in from other institutes and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the professors at the department would lecture in the mornings and the PhD students would have these tutorials and recitals in the afternoons. So we got a bit of taste of, you know, a bit of a taste of what it feels like to be teaching. I thought that was great fun too. In fact, uh, there was this one very memorable year when I think... Um, whole bunch of undergrads were around. This was the year when we were uh, organizing a couple of conferences as well. And we thought it would be fun if we could maybe, you know, work on a problem that would 
culminate in something that we could submit to this conference that we would be organizing later the mm-hmm. same year. And we thought that would be cool to do. So it was, I think, um, one of those things where it felt like we were, you know, very much in startup culture. We, I think, hustled <laughs> through that summer <laughs> and did, you know, uh, like there were, I think it was a fairly large group and did, I think, manifest uh, and eventually a paper. So you'll see that there is this, paper with like a bunch of clueless <laughs> uh, PhD students and undergrads who have, uh, you know, uh, tried to work on something. Um, and, um, and yeah, we did have a chance to present it later, later that, that year. So that was very cool. And uh, again, it was this thing about, you know, we, we weren't really doing it driven by, you know, any sort of a pressure to publish or to, you know, mm. prove anything to anyone. We were doing it because it just seemed like a, you know, a badass fun thing to do. So that's, you know, and like I said, we were kind of, you know, half clueless, half having fun. That's, uh, that was the general vibe. And, um, uh, but I think I do remember the, that the energy that everybody brought in to that, that collaboration back then was, uh, was extremely fun and positive. And I, I think, uh, you know, hopefully everybody will agree that, that it was, yeah. uh, that it was, it was a good, good fun summer that we spent together and most of I think math science also um, I think was a gateway to many other experiences I did a bunch of workshops uh, at the time Um, it it was all I think there there was a lot of nice exposure to the world at large like you said you're you're finding your own feet you're trying to develop some sense of taste as a researcher you're trying to figure out what the literature in your field looks like and you know getting to uh, know and meet people and um, you know this was also the time when I think I met uh, uh, Mike Fellows and Francis Rosamond for the first time so they are kind of the um, uh, Mike is considered the father figure of parameterized algorithms which is the field that I work in along with uh, Rod Downey and uh, Mike Langston and there was uh, there was a seminar a week-long workshop where I had a chance to meet all of them so it was like you know, stuff that dreams are made of if, you know, if you're an academic in the field. As a young academic, is like a complete beginner. To be in that sort of company and to see how, you know, how they work in real time was just, uh, you know, it was just a really cool experience. I mean, I don't think it's... Uh, um, it's either necessary or sufficient <laughs> for, you know, uh, for, let's say, academic growth. But it was just really nice that all of these things... Uh, actually happened and so I'm just very grateful to Math Science for providing all of those uh, truly wonderful opportunities at the time. Very nice, very nice. Since we are also kind of talking a little bit more about the career aspect, I would want to bring in a very nice uh, op-ed piece you wrote uh, in the Indian Express and in there you you mentioned a very important point which kind of uh, has kind of stuck with me. Uh, to quote uh, a choice of career or more immediately a branch or stream does not have to be prompted necessarily by an intense love at the first sight. The routes leading to your final pursuits can be potentially meandering and not having an inner voice abundant in clarity should be no cause for alarm. Stop quote. This is a very, very important and pertinent point, not only for students, but anybody who is actually looking at any any body of knowledge and wanting to dive into it or is a bit confused in such a stream of uh, kind of conscious. Uh, this is a, of course, I'll be linking this article in the, in the references. 
uh, for uh, uh, everybody to to read it uh, this is an important point uh, nindara where uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of you know uh, some kind of discomfort among students uh, to to be overwhelmed by the amount of information they are exposed to and i kind of sometimes pity them because uh, uh knowingly or unknowingly or probably uh because of the fact that the technology was not so advanced uh, at least in the generation when we were growing and also in your generation we were probably exposed to a set of information and you had to really seek that information through a particular channel to at least be aware of the fact that there is something interesting uh now given the fact that information is not on premium uh this problem actually has turned out to be slightly different and uh, which will also dovetail to an important point of uh, you making a transition into iits from let's say uh, imsc to uh, iisc uh, and then into iit uh, give us a kind of a, a, a journey of this particular process of transitions because you are now doing it as a career option uh, and therefore uh, you'd be also thinking about things and how to go about setting up your own pro, uh, uh, group and uh, uh, also some kind of questions you are trying to understand mm-hmm. from a slightly broader research viewpoint uh, so give us this uh, kind of uh, an overview and also we'll then uh, switch to your own research and also uh, uh, your your very interesting uh, outreach activities Okay, awesome. Yeah, I mean, the transition to um, an IIT system was, again, a bit of a out of my comfort zone sort of a transition, because it wasn't a system that I was familiar with at all. And I had uh, all these memories of, you know, uh, ditching the coaching material <laughs> for the entrance exam. So I really didn't feel like I was even, you know, qualified to consider this sort of a lateral entry into the system. It felt like a bit of a cheat, to be honest. But at the same time, um, I think there was this consideration that I felt like I was at home in the classroom and, um, you know, having access um to a large undergraduate population seemed like a massive perk and uh seemed like that that was uh, uh that that was worth um exploring and potentially you know dealing with the fears and and the insecurities that i had i thought we'll figure it out because you know uh it should really be interesting uh so the net outcome will you know hopefully be a positive and that was kind of the the motivating factor at the time and um yeah i mean um at isc i was uh, at, at some point i think i was a couple of years into my postdoc and the question that was natural at that point was what's what's next and i think there was a lot of talk about well you know maybe you want to do a postdoc internationally because i think there mm-hmm. is a notion that um international experience is valued in the job market so as a tactical thing i think there was uh you know the, i think there were a lot of well meaning suggestions around you know maybe just going out there for a bit um but again like i said i've, I've always been a little bit lazy in temperament and i really wanted to stay um close home and i didn't want to i didn't really have the um uh, the temperament and the energy to be doing like um uh like an international postdoc for for mm. a substantial duration of time so i just thought i would segue and switch to just 
you know, getting a real job would be nice to have. And I mean, of course, I'm like the poster girl for imposter syndrome. I always felt like, you know, I probably don't belong. And I'm always like quitting every three days, much to my advisor's collective angst. And they have to keep, you know, uh, giving me lots of cups of coffee and gyan to say that, you know, it's okay, uh, you'll do just fine and so on. So all of that encouragement has been really special. And I feel like I'd be doing that a disservice if I simply sort of walked out impromptu. So I, I figured mm. I should should hang in there for a little bit longer and you know at least try things out and see how it goes and if it's very obvious that I'm an abject failure then I can always work out it's always an option so you know why preempt it so um, I did get um, a pointer from uh, you know a mentor uh, whom I really, really trusted at the, uh, you know, I, I really trusted and I really trust, uh, who told me to go and check out IIT Gandhinagar. She said, you know, it's this cool new place. It looks like they're doing some really interesting things. It feels like an experiment um, in higher education that's worth checking out. And uh, we have some uh, really good leadership going there. And uh, she was... Uh, uh, she was very convinced that it would be something that would match my general, uh, you know, approach to the profession mm. and more broadly even to life, perhaps. So I think mm. because uh, she knew me well and she also knew people at IIT Gandhinagar well, I think she was able to uh, sort of make that connection and she encouraged mm. me to go check it out. And it turns out that um, IIT Gandhinagar was basically the only place that I applied to. So when I applied, I thought, Ki, ha, dekh lete. we'll see how it goes. And, um, uh, you know, I, I figured it would sort of be a dry run for the whole process, you know, how long drawn this process is of mm. applying for a faculty position. So I thought, well, it's an experiment like anything else. So let's try it out. And then, you know, I'll get some feedback and I'll try to, you know, use that feedback to improvise. And then I'll do the real mm. applications. I will seriously do pros and cons and uh, make a short list of places that I want to apply to, possibly also including Gandhinagar if they would be interested in me. But, you know, I had all these plans, but then I applied to Gandhinagar. I came in for the job talk and they were also very quick in responding uh, positively. And uh, then again, the, the sort of uh, laziness uh, tendency kicked in and I was like, okay, if it's worked out, let's just run with it, right? <laughs> and uh, there was also something I think deeply instinctive about it as well because I think I, uh, this was uh, normal times pre-COVID so the job interview and everything was in person and it's just something about the place vibed right it mm -hmm. felt like uh, you know it felt like I would uh, you know really enjoy being here and um, more than eight years in and it feels just the same mm -hmm. so I've, uh, you know it feels like a fun man again I think just like we said about the you know college experience even professionally the experience that you have at a job is really a lot more about the people that you work with uh, than about again external factors like you know the NIRF ranking who cares right I mean you know <laughs> so, so it's just so much more about your lived day-to-day -day experiences and once again I think IITGN has been really special in terms of having just a fantastic department, phenomenal students, like what more can you ask for? And of course, I yeah. think it's also great that the campus is wonderful and all of those logistical things have also checked out really well. But uh, for me, really what determines the quality of your experience is the people that you're interacting mm. with daily. And, um, you know, that experience here has been just uh, really so wonderful. And uh, so, 
you know, again, um, I think just, uh, yeah, a lot of this, I think, has been down to, you know, uh, having lucked out a lot, but yeah, it's 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 worked. It's worked in a, in a it worked out in a nice way. I did have my inhibitions about getting into the IIT system, a system that I didn't really understand, and mm-hmm. one that I borderline did not even like because of you know kind of the whole. Uh, this is probably true also of you know some of the other non-IIT institutes, but kind of the you know elitism that goes with them is kind of at loggerheads with the generally inclusive approach that we want to have towards science and stem education and outreach right and and iits are about as exclusive as it gets by definition so that is something that's always a bit of a nagging thought and i was like you know am i going to belong in a place that has this as its foundation However, I think, you know, in, uh, you know, at the time it, it was the founding director, Professor Jen, and I think conversations with him early on made it very clear that he was using the sort of the blank canvas of a new IIT to really build something special mm-hmm. and didn't have to conform to the known norms that, you know, a lot of these institutes are subjected to. So, of course, it's still going to select people through, you know, the JE exam because it's procedural, but... He, his point was that you can also use this as a platform to do so much more. So much and, more. Um, you know, and I think that is true. So you can, uh, this is a very enabling, empowering place of privilege. And I think if you use all of those powers well, you can really move the needle, uh, you know, in in a suitably positive direction, hopefully. Positive. We make a small dent. So so I think, you know, everything said and done, it's it's been a net positive. I do worry about sometimes the kids wondering, ki, you know, ye se padhane because, you know, <laughs> it's probably like I have a background that they may not be able to relate to. However, mm. I think once you actually work with them a few classes in, uh, it's it's always been, you know, I've always uh, had really positive vibes. I, I really, I mean, this is probably a fear that's mostly self-construed and in my head more than something that's an actual reality, I think. Because so far I haven't really had any reasons to complain. So it's been a, it's been a good Wonderful. decision, I think. <laughs> Wonderful. Indeed, indeed. In fact, uh, it's, it's an important uh, part of uh, a, a personal decision one has to make. Uh, because uh, uh, generally people think that the academic career is kind of laid back, uh, but intellectually it is anything other than that. <laughs> if yeah. you really want to think and uh, do things, uh, yeah. it is uh, it, it gives you a lot of room. Uh, on Because uh, superficially it might look that uh, <laughs> there are no classes on Saturdays and Sundays. It doesn't mean that the thinking stops there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think, um, you know, there is also this perception of, you know, Akhir Sarkari Nokri hai, you know, because it's this, this so-called... Um, I guess in the US you would say tenure, here you would say it's a permanent job or whatever it is. And, um, you know, maybe there's like always some like, you know, 0.5%, like a measure zero subset of the population that really lives up to that stereotype. But I think by and large, um, you know, everyone is really, I think, um, you know, takes the job quite seriously and there's a lot of accountability involved and uh, even baked into the system in ways that I actually appreciate. I mean, I might again 
like you know i think all the coffee table jokes apart i think it's uh, you know we do yeah. have a lot of checks and balances now and so um you know i think uh, from an administrator's point of view i think it's hard because they'll have to strike the balance between mm-hmm. making uh people feel like they're trusted but at the yeah. same time making sure that you know that that all the investment that the system is making into us is faculty uh you know is uh, well utilized right i mean from Absolutely. a societal point of view it's important i mean we are a poor country and you know mm-hmm. we are drawing um substantial salaries i mean i know i think even on your podcast i think comparisons with industry have come up in the past but yeah. if you think about it in absolute terms i think we're living a very good life and i think it's Absolutely. Absolutely. you know yeah it's it's a good idea to make sure that we uh you know feel like i mean you know we justify it to some extent so if we have to you know do um uh, whatever checks and balances are imposed by whatever system is in place i think it's overall a, a good sanity check to have i think absolutely absolutely i totally agree with you and this also probably gives us a little bit more of a responsibility for us to kind of give back to the system not okay. that uh, uh not that anything is uh, kind of uh, lacking uh, but per se there is a lot of interest also among the public to understand what it takes for somebody to do research and education based kind of approach to a lot of things uh, and uh, that's something which people probably are still appreciating and uh, maybe learning the public perception per se of educational institutions and research institutions are right. not probably up to the mark uh, as we may want them to be aware of right exactly and uh, yeah who who better than the people who have high stakes in that system so and uh, the students totally. and faculties are are the ones who generally have to do that yeah absolutely so yeah i think that's that's totally crucial and i think many things have you know evolved in the right direction in in this context yeah so, yeah, yeah. so we're going to now get into the your current work what you do both in terms of research and outreach uh before i get into the education outreach aspect which i am also very keen to hear from you i would also want to know about your research uh what are your current research questions uh, uh how big a group you have what kind of work you people are doing give us a kind of a picture of, of all those things Okay sure I don't know if I'm going to do a good job of this because my research tends to be very scatterbrained as yeah. opposed to you know folks who have um, you know a style which involves having a fairly well mapped out agenda where they yeah. have like a 10 year time scale or horizon mm-hmm. unfortunately I have none of that for me research is because like I said I'm always living on the fringe ready to quit yeah. tomorrow <laughs> so for me life is very much one day at a time and and I hope if there's anybody who shares the style that this comes across some validation uh, as as validation that you can survive even in this very sort of chaotic state of mind uh, so for me research is a very social activity which is ironic because i think after um, mounts i think um, we did all you know go through this whole circus of placements and mm-hmm. you know looking for uh, looking for jobs and so on as you would normally do and it was actually that was also a kind of a passive motivator for looking into higher education options because all the jobs seemed to involve working in a team and i was like having done lots of group projects and having done them badly in college as <laughs> like you know this team business is probably not going to be my cup of tea so then i had this kind of really 
uh, really cliche stereotype of the researchers being, you know, this sort of isolated, crazy guys who, you know, never gets out of his room and, you know, uh, minds his own business and nobody bothers him. And I'm like, yes, this is uh, this is what I want for myself to be to be left alone. And um, surprisingly, I think math science helped me really come full circle on that. I realized that the bits that I enjoyed the most was the research being a vehicle and an excuse for me to chat with people yeah. that I had, you know, a lot of fun spending time with. And, uh, you know, the, the research was sort of a common driving fabric that brought okay. us together. And uh, uh, it, for me, uh, surprisingly to myself, I think research became a inherently social activity and I enjoyed that aspect of it a lot uh, which I mean I'm otherwise normally fairly introverted so for me this was a bit of a revelation uh, but this was a context in which I could really feel like I'm having um, having a good time talking talking to folks who share the same passion for the same kinds of things so the same kinds of questions and um, so that continues to this day so even now a lot of uh, the work that I do is basically you know uh, things that are of mutual interest uh, to me and you know people that I enjoy spending time with which in the context of you know where I am right now is mostly students so what usually happens is that you know we're chatting and I'm trying to get a sense of what are the kinds of things that a particular student would enjoy thinking about or exploring and then I try to go and look at my bucket list of things that you know I've been wanting to explore or think about and try to find a good match mm -hmm. and we zero in on something so as a result my um, you know the work that I do does have this flavor that it's all over the place there isn't a common binding theme but one thing that has um, sort of carried forward from the IIC days which is where I worked with a game theory group is that I think a lot of these problems do have a uh, sort of a game theory undercurrent so uh, we're thinking about creating uh, either creating systems that elicit a certain behavior that is desirable. Mm -hmm. So let's say you want people to, you know, I don't know, not break traffic rules or something. So how do you set up, um, you know, incentive? You want people to not cheat in exams. So how do you set up an incentive scheme that makes that happen? So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is knowing that a system is set up in certain ways can you predict behaviors? Can you predict how people will react to it? So this is kind of the broad themes in game theory and mechanism design. And I first encountered these styles of thinking when I was doing my postdoc. And some of that sort of permeates the work, uh, you know, that I do now. Um, but also um, off late, I think this is something that happened. At some point, I started playing um, games to the point where my you know i think my family got worried about whether you know <laughs> i was potentially going to get addicted or something so then i thought well maybe i should just study games so that i can pass this yeah. off as billable hours right i'm going to say <laughs> that i'm you know <laughs> this is this is work I'm, I'm actually developing intuition for how to analyze the game later and then you know i i had to i had to actually justify this approach by you know actually um you know, writing papers about the games that I was playing. So at some point I started doing that just for fun. And uh, it turns out that there is a shared love for 
games and for analyzing them um, among students and a few other friends that I know. So that's become like another kind of thread in my, um, you know, sort of research agenda, which basically emerged from this accidental hobby of, you know, playing silly games on the phone. But now, you know, we kind of look at it from a mathematical perspective, from a computational perspective, and it's all kind of really cool. And something that I'm hoping to get into is, you know, in a similar vein, I think uh, there's a lot of research on computational aspects of origami, which is something that I only mm-hmm. uh, know as, again, an activity that I enjoy. And now I think if I start doing it enough that I feel anxious about, you know, whether I'm taking off too much time, I'm going to start probably thinking about, you know, how to maybe turn it into a research problem uh, that, that I can then uh, justify all my time messing around with paper. But then, yeah, so, so I think, um, I mean, origami, of course, is very cool real world applications and, you know, I mean, once you know how to fold and unfold things efficiently, it leads to more efficient packaging. I'm you know, sure people have seen videos of these uh, sort of satellite components unfolding. Mm-hmm. It lets you, you know, uh, so, so origami techniques have um, um, have have very real world use cases. But there's I also whoops, sorry, I think that's a CD. <laughs> anyway, okay, so um, uh, so yeah, so what I was saying is that origami has. Uh, um, has a bunch of fighting real world applications, but it's also uh, it's also a very rich um, canvas on which to explore a ton of math, right. mathematical analysis. So, so that's something that's kind of on the horizon. It's something that uh, you know, if I find the right uh, uh, you know gang of people who might uh, you know who might be interested in humoring my curiosity, that that's something <laughs> that might uh, emerge later. Uh, but for now, the group looks like, you know, I have um, the four PhD students that I work with. One of them is co-supervised with um, with one of our colleagues here, uh, Fred Coolidge. Um, she's actually in the humanities department and she's um, working wow. on a PhD uh, yeah, on, on actually science communication. So a lot of my um, interest in, um, you know, science journalism is fed into by just, you know, um, having um, regular conversations with her about her work. Uh, so I'm mostly the cheerleader PI uh, who is there for the moral support. A lot of the uh, the, the intellectual um, work um, uh, that, that she's doing is, is with Fred. Uh, but I get to, you know, have these coffee table conversations with her where I learn about, you know, I think she's looking at cognitive aspects of science communication, which I think is very interesting. Uh, she's thinking about, you know, what does it, um, what does it take to communicate science in a way that's probably customized to optimize mm-hmm. for how people think? And I think that's, well, you know, that's interesting because I think marketing people look at this a lot where they try to deliver, you know, so these days I think you're probably starting to see advertisements that are customized to your personality yes. type. Yes. So, you know, based on what the companies know about you, your searching habits, your browsing habits, you're probably seeing slightly tailor-made messages. But what if we could do this for you know, um, messages about science or clarifying misinformation, like fine-tuning the messages in such a way that, um, you know, it, it might, I think it has it has this flavor where you might start wondering if it's manipulative, but if it's, mm-hmm. if it's in a sense, manipulating for the greater good, greater then, good. you know, maybe that's uh, it's justified. But a lot of these, are, I mean, even the ethical aspects of it are very much uh, under exploration right now. So that's, that's basically what she's uh, working on apart from other things. And uh, the other three students, and one of them is in the Department of Mathematics, the other two are in computer science, but one of them 
did a master's in uh, mathematics with me before she uh, transitioned into the PhD mm. program. So that's another nice thing about Gandhinagar is that they have a lot of fluidity across departments. You could be in a certain department. Your advisor could be in a different department. You could have a co-advisor in a different department. So there's all kinds of uh, crazy things that happen. And without any real overhead in terms of paperwork, which is nice because I'm I'm very bad at paperwork. So it's, it's really right. nice that, uh, you know, all of these things happen with, you know, no friction whatsoever. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really nice to be working with this, these, this sort of variety of young people. They're all working on different aspects of, you know, one of them is working on, on games. And the, um, one of them is working on uh, resource allocation problems and the other is working on combinatorial optimization problems. So all of them are slightly different flavors. Uh, but I think we've all found uh, they're, all in, uh, they're all senior PhD students and probably set to graduate in the near future. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they've done really well for themselves. I'm really proud of, uh, uh, proud of all of them. And, and uh, again, uh, really happy to have had these opportunities to work with these wonderful people. So that's, uh, uh, yeah, so that's the broad theme of, you know, what it looks like. And uh, there's also, of course, I think at a lot of places now, and including us, a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, promoting undergraduate uh, research as mm, well. Yeah, so, yeah. so we also end up working with, with a lot of undergrads over project courses and um, also had a few master's students on and off. So that's what the general composition looks like. Yeah. Nice, nice, very nice. Uh, so now we will head towards uh, uh, a very interesting aspect of your work. Uh, which is the the outreach. So before we get into the specifics, I also uh, uh, read some of your blogs, and I like the the opening uh, <laughs> kind of you know the quote from Ernst Hemingway, which reads, "Quote: Real seriousness in regard to writing is one of the two absolute necessities. The other, unfortunately, is talent." <laughs> Stop quote. And you also give you uh, you give a caution to proceed uh, uh, without those prerequisites. Uh, but uh, kind of you know, uh, jokes apart, uh, the most important aspect of of uh, science communication or any kind of you know exposition where you want to reach out to a slightly broader audience, although the forms might change, but it is strongly anchored in writing. And uh, this is something I also found in many of your work. Be it the uh, be it the blogs you write, which I'm going to anyway link in the references, and also the uh, also uh, the general communication you have on Twitter and other other platforms. Uh, so, what motivated you to use writing as a as a main kind of domino, so to speak? And uh, what has been your experience? Because I also find your your uh, your exposition, even on social media, to be very very well thought out and uh, very interesting. Especially when it also comes to uh, putting out questions and aspects related to games and other things. I assume you're also doing something related to gardener's puzzles, yeah, uh, which is also a, a common interest I have uh, over the years. Oh, could, you please, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about that aspect? Sure. So I think writing um, for me, and I think, again, this is true for many people that I know, so it's by no means a unique uh, perspective or anything, but... <laughs> Uh, writing is just a clarifying process, uh, you know, for myself. So a lot of the 
uh, thinking and understanding is intertwined, um, you know, with the writing. And um, again, I think I remember from one of your previous episodes where you touched upon this idea that teaching is a great way to learn, right? I mean, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, you want to learn something, if you force yourself to teach it, that forces yeah. you to unravel um, you know, uh, deeper layers of understanding because it's all too easy to convince yourself that you've upar, upar se understood upar, something, yeah, but yeah. the real test is when you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, convince yeah. somebody else of yes, the, the yeah. same thing. So, uh, yeah, writing is basically, I think, a natural extension of the process of teaching in a classroom setting. Uh, having put in uh, some of that effort into clarifying things for uh, typically a classroom scenario or maybe um, other settings which are you know, uh, discussion oriented. Um, it feels like uh, the process of writing just gives some of those processes a bit of a permanent record. Sometimes it happens after the teaching is done. Sometimes it happens as an act of preparation before I go into teaching, where I know that, okay, if I've written it out, then that gives me some confidence that maybe, you know, I've clarified it at least to myself to a point where I feel like I can go ahead, go ahead and talk about it. Uh, so it, it happens both ways, depending on the depending on the situation and how badly organized I am. <laughs> Uh, for you know for for my for what for whatever the situation is at the time uh but yeah i think writing is um yeah it's it's for me it's like a tool for clarifying thought processes mm-hmm. and um it's kind of it's helpful and if it helps somebody else it's great so i'm happy to put put this out there because i have benefited a lot from reading what other people have mm-hmm. put out on their respective blogs, uh, Twitter handles, websites, etc. And uh, for me, it's been immensely valuable. So I'm paying it forward, even though it comes at the small risk of, I do feel like, yeah, I think most, I, I'm sure that people can relate to this. I, I feel that it's never done and, you know, it's yeah, not yeah. perfect. And I wish it was better and more polished and so on. But I've kind of learned to basically become more shameless over the years. And I think <laughs> one thing that age buys you is that kind of, so, you know, <laughs> just go out there and put it out there. I probably don't have much of a reputation to do so it's okay i mean um i think previously i would be a little more guarded and like i said i'm naturally i think uh, uh, i tip on the introvert side of the spectrum so i sometimes surprise myself at you know how um, basically addicted i am to twitter and you know how much uh, how much of myself i i put out there it's it's kind of sometimes um you know i really wonder if it's me and i worry if it's not authentic because you know, that's, uh, I'm, I'm really a lot more reserved in person in general, but mm-hmm. um, but somehow it's been very fulfilling. And I think I've met people on Twitter whom I wouldn't have met otherwise. I think we also, you know, we yeah. cross paths right. on Twitter as well, yeah. right? So Absolutely. I think if this is, uh, you know, if this is the outcome, it's so worth it, right? So I would, you know, you know so I would do it all over again because I think uh, it's, it's led to these really uh, meaningful connections. Um, and um, I think people have reached out to me saying that they found it valuable, uh, the stuff mm-hmm. that I put out sometimes, uh, either in terms of like the actual material or in terms of, uh, you know, just knowing um, knowing that here's this person uh, who seems mm-hmm. to have made it and, you know, and uh, they're out there and this is what they're doing. And somehow it's just somebody that they can relate to. And I think if I can be that person for someone, then, you know, that's that's awesome. So why not? I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like 
Yeah, I mean, often, so like I said, the imposter syndrome and putting myself out there often at loggerheads. And I resolved that by saying that, okay, I mean, maybe for many people, you're this person who they can look at and feel like if this idiot can make it, then I am going to make it. Too. So so I'm, I'm perfectly happy now to sort of be that person for other people. I think um, that's uh, that's how I resolve the, the sort of the internal conflict. And um, and I think fortunately I've not, like I know that Twitter and other social media platforms can have a dark side. And I think unfortunately it's for some people, it's been a really toxic experience. Yeah, and again, yeah. I just have to say that I've been, somehow just really lucky i think my uh, my feed has always been useful and positive generally mm-hmm. speaking um, i think i've just managed to mute out the energies that i don't connect mm-hmm. with and fortunately i've never had a direct experience of you know harassment or anything mm-hmm. like that and this is not to i mean i'm sure for some people unfortunately that's their lived experience so i totally appreciate yeah. that this may not be for everyone and like some people we just like to stay away from these platforms for their own sort of mental health and sanity and so on. So, so I think there's, I acknowledge that there's totally that side to all of this. And uh, for everyone, I think they have to figure out what works for them. I think I've been kind of, for me, I mean, I don't know. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know how long it'll last because Twitter, even as a platform, seems to be going through yeah. its own <laughs> exactly. sort of, uh, yeah. craziness. So, um, yeah, so I would be sad if it were to just, you know, get to a point where it's totally unusable. But, you know, we've been hanging in there so far and hopefully it'll last for a little bit longer. But, um, uh, but yeah, so, so, I mean, but for people who have had to quit early, I mean, yeah, I really, um, yeah, feel bad for people who have not had... Um, uh, sort of the, they've had more of the bad than the good on social media I think uh, it's 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 definitely sad when that happens I can really be a you know yeah I mean it, it, it's a very risky um, uh, place in general but if you have found a way to navigate it that makes it positive for you I think it's okay to uh, engage and be involved till a time where you know it's still sensible and when it's not you stop I suppose that's yeah. how it works yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's actually also an advantage of anchoring uh, most of your communication in writing per se, because yeah. the platforms might change. Yeah. Uh, and I I see that you, uh, I am also very impressed by your your web page. I should mention it's the way it's designed and uh, also <laughs> way, the way it's maintained. Uh, because uh, as I, I I keep emphasizing, even among students and also a lot of colleagues, is uh, the writing aspect. Is, is an important thing, right? Because uh, even for people who would want to, let's say, produce a podcast or or uh, even a video or something like that, uh, the the origins are always in the written word. Uh, right. One might actually use it in a different way. Uh, and therefore, uh, being at academics, there is a, a, there's a very interesting connection there to make, to even uh, reach out to students and even people uh, totally. at large. Uh, through through this particular uh, medium, and uh, yeah, if if uh, Elon Musk is hearing to this <laughs> podcast, <laughs> please keep keep the keep the uh, same kind of you know the the uh, aspect which is really good about the Twitter. Yeah, going, yeah, uh, I know. Let us hang in there for a little bit longer, please. Yes, I mean <laughs> yeah. it would be it would be nice to not lose the platform because it really, yeah, I mean. It feels unique in many ways. I, I haven't found a steady replacement, and I think many of us haven't found 
uh, something that's quite like this. So, and that's also, again, it's about, again, the community that makes it. I think a lot of Indian STEM uh, community, mm-hmm. the Indian journalism community, yeah. uh, they're all on this platform and we see some really meaningful exchanges. I would, it Absolutely. would be sad to have all of that go away. So I, I hope... Uh, yeah, I hope it's around for a bit. But yeah, I mean, I think for anybody who is working um, hard to put um, uh, to put content out there, I think uh, it definitely makes sense to put your content on an independent and permanent platform mm-hmm. that you control, and then I think uh, reshare it on on all all the yeah. other platforms where other the platforms. audiences are. But uh, but yeah, having a permanent home is is kind of very important because you're putting in all this hard work. It, makes yeah. sense to give it its own home yeah absolutely absolutely so uh before we jump into uh, another very interesting section where we talk about things in your um, uh, mother tongue yeah. uh, could you just give us a little bit of an overview of the kind of uh, outreach activities you are in, you are involved in uh, i i know that uh, formally also you are involved in certain programs uh, right. i assume that you also were the dean uh, in in some particular uh, responsibility you were taking that uh, right. could you please tell us so, a little bit sure so i think um uh, yeah i mean it's um yeah, I think it's not the case right now, but I think I was involved in the external communications department for IIT Gandhinagar for uh, almost uh, very soon after I joined the institute back in 2015. So I think officially term started in 16-17, fairly early on into my tenure here, and it lasted until I think sometime last year or a little bit uh, a while ago. Yeah, so yeah. that was... Uh, I think um, more than five, six years stint. And I think I have a blog where I kind of, um, I, have a, I have a post on the blog where I kind of uh, talk about how that went. Um, a lot of that involved uh, institutional outreach, which is a different uh, beast compared to individual outreach. Yeah, and yeah, you have absolutely. to have, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of it was about, um, you know, general policy making and figuring out the right balances and, you know, what's our, overall approach uh, to outreach. Is there such a thing as doing too much outreach? Um, are there areas where, the, where we're falling short? So those are some very, very interesting conversations. And I think uh, we had a lot of support from early on uh, from the communications team at Duke University who had mm. come as a part of a larger collaboration that we had with Duke. And uh, they gave us a lot of advice from their many years of experience. So, so that was a uh, uh, that, that was a really interesting um, uh, experience overall. Uh, I, I think I learned a lot about, uh, you know, like I said, from an institutional perspective, how do you think about outreach mm-hmm. and uh, the kind of variety that you might encounter in uh, individual faculty approaches to outreach, right? I mean, I think people yeah, have yeah. a whole spectrum of opinions none of which is invalid because, you know, people are coming from different backgrounds and contexts and they have their own views, which you, you know, have to sort of respect as you go along. And um, sometimes you probably try to influence their opinions as well in the broader institutional interest. But, you know, sometimes you realize that, you know, sometimes everybody just has a valid point and you have to right. kind of, you know, work around it. Uh, so, you know, navigating those dynamics is kind of interesting. And we didn't only focus on, um, you know, technical outreach. We were also doing, uh, we were also documenting the Institute's 
history as it was evolving and mm. so on. We were doing the annual letters and the newsletters and, and all of that. So it was uh, a lot of the more routine documentation also happened as a, as a part of the department. We were also doing the website. So there were all of these different verticals that we were managing. And uh, it was a very young team and a very enthusiastic one. So again, a massive privilege working with um, mm. you know all of them uh, who really brought in a lot of energy to make everything happen. So, so that was a really, really special experience. Um, other than that, yeah, informal capacities, I think, well, I suppose, I mean, you could say that I'm currently a member of INYAS, which has a huge focus mm. on outreach. It's the, um, it's the Young Academy of, of INSA. And I think they, um, one of their mandates is to promote outreach and to get, uh, you know, to get the whatever the current generation of scientists to put themselves out there a little bit more. So as a part of um, INYAS is always support and encouragement for doing more of these kinds of activities, which is always very nice. And um, a lot of the other outreach I do is like basically through schools and colleges and just, you know, being out there putting stuff out on the platforms that I have access to, as you've already mentioned. So that becomes a sort of a repository that I can build on. And then when I go places, I can point people to different things, depending on what they're interested in and what's relevant. But um, I, this conversation would be incomplete if I didn't mention uh, the Center for Creative Learning, which is a center mm -hmm. at IIT Gandhinagar. It's run by... Um, somebody called Manish Jain, who is mm. um, who has a Silicon Valley history. He was uh, mm. part of I think Synopsis, the company is called, and mm. um, I think um, um, he's good friends with folks at SAC at ISA Pune. So mm. yes, um, yes. you know, I in fact, we have had a very nice uh, kind of uh, talk by him, uh, kind of an engagement with the students, which right. has really you know captured uh, the imagination of many many young. Right, right. So, 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 you know, you know, Manish being Manish, it just brings all this infectious energy exactly. to whatever he's doing. So it's it's just amazing, um, you know, sharing space uh, with him in whatever capacity. So he, um, you know, I think he's. So I think after he came back uh, from uh, the Bay Area and uh, he mm -hmm. came back uh, here, I think he worked with Arvind Gupta for a while, and yeah. then he started engaging with our orientation programs, and I think. Um, you know, at some point, uh, you know, uh, we convinced him to just join the Institute. Uh, and the rest is history. I think the Center for Creative Learning has seen uh, tremendous growth in the last, uh, you know, six, seven years uh, that it's existed. And uh, like I said, it's been a massive privilege for me to sort of be a part of their journey in whatever capacity. And whenever I see them doing their outreach, it's hugely inspiring. And sometimes I would you know, kind of get involved in some of the programs that they're doing. And I often steal ideas and materials that they have for my classes <laughs> even because a lot of it is actually very well suited even Certainly. to an undergraduate classroom, even though their focus is mostly schools. A lot of Absolutely. it is really generic and uh, very suitable for, you know, they say it's for kids. But I think, you know, even as... Uh, I guess a uh, technical adult, I, I find <laughs> I find a lot of joy in spending time at their lab. So I think a lot of the general inspiration for doing outreach and continuing to be involved comes from seeing the huge impact that CCL has had with doing their outreach. And you see, um, you know, when you see the consequences, then you realize that, yeah, this is worth uh, continuing to do, basically. So, yeah, that's, that's a nice 
very nice very nice yeah. excellent i wish you all the best for that venture and uh, now we'll move on to a slightly more lighter aspect of the podcast and also something very interesting i generally request my uh, guests to uh, talk about their uh, motivations and also their uh, research interests in their mother tongue so uh, may i request you to kind of uh, give us that o- overview in in your mother tongue please yeah i'm going to try and do that i um, i wish i could do this in kannada i thought i will prepare and uh, you know <laughs> rehearse a little bit but uh, unfortunately uh, kannada is something that i can follow if like i think when you were talking to um uh, vishvesha 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 yes yeah. i think i was able to follow that conversation uh, but unfortunately i don't uh, i think i i will just uh, completely blunder any any <laughs> so so i'm going to try and do this in odia which is not much better it's uh, the yeah, language yeah. that i speak at home but in very limited capacity so with all those disclaimers sure. in place um i'm i'm going to try and do this and also maybe this is a good time for a small edit because i will try to get the zoom meeting going which i said yeah, i'll have yeah. to do it okay so um मत कहती मोर ओडिया भल नुहे मो घरे कथबार्ता कंट्रोडक्शन हिसाब से मोर ना नीलधारा गोटे कंप्यूटर सैंटिस्ट आम कंप्यूटर्स कंप्यूटर्स केते केते कंप्यूटर्स केमते गोटे स्पेसीफिक मेसीन डिपेड कर गोटे प्रकार जेनेलैज कर मैथमेटिकल हिसाब से देखा चेस्टा करू सो यूटार ना ही दिखाई थिओरेटिकल कंप्यूटर सैंस सो मुझे जिनस विषय भाविया चेस्टा कै अल्प टिके पढ़ापढ़ी कै पढ़ाया चेस्टा कैम कम जो मैंने पढ़ापढ़ी करते तो जो तुम एडवांस्ड एजुकेशन कर तो लांगुएज हिसाब से तुमको केत गोटे ट्रांजेक्शन करसगुड़ाक तुम टेक्निकली शिख से तो तुम शिखी से तुमको कि असुविधा हेनी मानते टाइम जीव तुमको यू नो तुम एडजस्ट करल्चराली रुटेड रखर बहीपत्र तुम गीत नाच से सब जिन से तमे थ्रू आउट एंजॉय करो से थ्रू तुमको गोटे सेंस ऑफ सेंस ऑफ रुटेडनेस मिलो जोटा जोटा कि मो हिसाब से बहुत स्पेशल मोर से कनेक्शन टा टे कम रही कारण मुझे टाइम स्पेड कर पूरा बांग्लोर में रही तो सेते चांस तो मिले किंतु तमे जो जो भी भी अच्छे ये जिनस गुड़ाक तुमको गोटे प्रकार कनेक्टेड रख मत लगुच गोटे प्रकार 
you know say seta gote prakar ro important ao you know special to seta seta tame karantu baki sabu jinso dako to ta batre hei jibo to seitre kichhi seitre kichhi koibar kotha nai to ebe pai eti koi ak chaim i can briefly translate that i don't yeah, know how yeah. it was uh, clear but i think i was trying to say that well i said what i do and then i said that well i mean at some point maybe uh, you know for people who have been uh, let's say studying in odia medium i know a fair number of people who do that and uh, again being in the iit system i know for a lot of people transitioning from a regional system to exactly. a global language yeah. system is a challenge and my point is that the technical parts the engineering and the math people will pick that up eventually so i'm not eventually. too worried on uh, yeah on their behalf for that i'm not too worried hopefully especially with improving technology we have uh, uh, you know this process becomes only more inclusive as we go along however um, there are aspects of you know where you come from which are more non technical it's the you know sort of the cultural aspects that make you feel a sense of rootedness and where you belong and um, if that's where you get some meaning from and uh, mm-hmm. that's that's where you derive um, a sense of joy from then hang on to that be connected to your culture uh, you know know your books and your music and your art and whatever it is that makes you feel connected that's always going to be special so i think uh, that's what makes you you so uh, the math and the computations everybody is going to pick up so the you know this is okay sorry about that but i think i should yeah. make applications um sorry. yeah that's that's a very nice uh, description uh, uh, neela uh, it also is very important because now that the technology has really kind of you know expanded so much one would be able to connect yourself to your roots even if you are away from the so called home and uh, that's an important aspect uh, what you just mentioned about uh, which yeah. is equally critical uh so uh, we'll go into the the last part of the uh, the, the podcast where i generally uh, request my guests to uh tell us about uh, any kind of general inspiration art music any any aspect of outside science which has motivated them or which which still motivates them uh, uh, any any form of uh, relaxation yeah uh, which you which you can talk about yeah i think for sure i um <laughs> uh so i guess like i said i think growing up i was i was always attracted to activities like um you know reading and like a lot of indoor stuff unfortunately i was never somebody who was out there very much uh so i think um, just like cooking i think sports was a major uh, yeah. element that was missing so it was conspicuous in absence however um i think uh, what i did end up spending a lot of time doing was just reading random things and uh, yeah. um and a lot of doodling and sketching so um in terms of unfortunately of late i think i don't know if this is the case for you but i haven't been reading as much it's uh, <laughs> it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit sad i've been trying to compensate yeah. a bit by trying to get into audiobooks as a medium and so on yes. so um so i tried to do this funny thing a couple of years ago where um i tried to uh, 
compensate for my complete lack of understanding of sport by reading a lot of sports bio biographies that <laughs> uh, was a really really interesting experience i think i uh, was looking up um, and there these really beautiful biographies among the ones that i can remember of the top of my head i think um andrea gassi has open mm. and uh, yeah, there's a yeah. biography of abhinav bindra this vishwanath anand and yeah. uh, there's um, uh, maria sharapova has a nice autobiography as well um and i think there were like a few few others that, that i was doing uh, mostly uh, you know people who are who are involved in indian sport in some capacity but also yeah. uh, also beyond uh, these i think uh, yeah these these are some of the ones that are just off of off the top of my head uh, it was a year of reading a lot of uh, you know how sports people approach life and competition nice. because to me competition is a very strange concept it's something that i don't uh, don't really understand uh, very well i don't know why people would put themselves willingly in such a situation where they are you know at loggerheads yeah, with yeah. each other and um, you know um, yeah so that that was a very interesting experience unlocked uh, and fresh set of insights and it's it was very different from my normal comfort zone and things that i'm used to so so that 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 was um, uh, I, i would recommend um not necessarily specifically picking up sports biographies but anything that you kind of had a curiosity about something yes. that feels like you know uh, i don't understand this and then trying to just maybe doing a little bit of exploration to appreciate what a uh, point of view that otherwise seems very distant may feel like because i think again getting into an increasingly polarized world where people are talking over each other and not able to understand uh, you know distinctive perspectives so i think just building this up as a general skill and i did it in a very benign sort of context but even in more serious um uh, for more serious themes and topics i think it's generally a good idea to go and understand what the other side looks like one that you may not have a lot of appreciation for and then i think um yeah in terms of yeah, i don't have a very developed taste in any of the any of the other things for example with music i don't have an understanding of music so i just listen to whatever sparks joy so it could be um in fact i almost miss uh, the days of radio because it's just very serendipitous and you know you just listen to whatever random thing comes on and uh, so for me now i think youtube discovery has replaced radio so i will yeah. really it's not it's not a very uh, you know it's not a very organized thing but i mostly listen to mostly listen to music that's uh, um hindi uh, typically bollywood but also like a little bit of uh, hindustani or carnatic classical as recommended by people who know what they're doing so a lot of friends who uh, know these things well and they'll tell me that you'll probably enjoy listening to this and i'll probably go and check out whatever whatever is recommended by friends who do have a good taste in, in such matters so that that helps so yeah i mean overall i think um, yeah that, that, i mean I, i i should also say just circling back to the topic of language i think uh, netflix is a phenomenon that's really unlocked access to language for me the yeah. fact that uh, they have fairly high quality uh, as far as i can make out high quality subtitles and Absolutely. you know sound Absolutely. sounds yeah. i think it's really cool so now you know the fact that you can watch movies in other indian languages and maybe yeah. even foreign languages i think uh, that really opens up uh, new experiences and even uh, culturally brings you closer to you know uh, to other 
um, uh, to, to other ways that people exist and do things. So that's that's been a bit of a revelation in the last few years. So I have uh, always felt like, although linguistically, I think growing up, like I said, we've always spoken Odia at home, except when we are arguing and I switch to English because <laughs> I run out of vocabulary. But <laughs> so, uh, and, and then I think growing up, I actually probably spoke a little bit of Marathi because my friends were all, oh. you know, people, folks who were Marathi. And Bengali has always felt close because of its similarity oh. to Odia in, in just the sound of it. And um, Hindi has been familiar thanks to the movies and the fact that, like I was mentioning earlier, we had an amazing Hindi teacher in school. And that made a big difference. So, so I think uh, Hindi has always, so even though I'm sure my grammar is all messed up in terms of Bhavna Samajna type Hindi, oh. I think <laughs> I can get by. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, and, and of course, Kannada was a language in school. So there was a time when I actually spoke and knew Kannada reasonably. I mean, possibly... Uh, I had possible fluency, uh, but I think it's just going out of practice, not having people to converse with that's yeah. made me lose touch. And, you know, hopefully there's, a, you know, at some point maybe I get it back uh, by having a good good excuse to uh, to get back to it. So, so I think, I, I mean, although I've not been good at uh, retaining um, uh, linguistic uh, memory or actual skill, I've had this kind of, uh, you know, patches of exposure to different languages. And I think it's beautiful. Um, you know, language really is, uh, it's also tricky business. I mean, it's uh, philosophically, if you think about it, I think language is our vehicle for expression. Yeah, and there's certain things that you can say in one language that don't really have an exact translation on yeah. another one. So I think um, it's something to be cherished. So I always feel a little sad when issues around language get politicized because I think we should just be working towards uh, yeah. preserving all our traditions and preserving uh, the beauty of language instead of uh, um, instead of arguing about it. Like you know, <laughs> so uh, so that, <laughs> that. Uh, so yeah. When you talk about cultural inspiration and so on, there's just so much rich heritage that uh, that's you know. Um, and that's sitting in each of our sort of regional cultures. And it's nice that uh, one of the things that I think technology has done is kind of brought some of those experiences closer home and easier to be a part of. So, so now really, I think people who want to explore, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to do that. So, so I think uh, that's, that's been really nice, and especially in the last, uh, last few years, uh, last couple of decades, I would say. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, so last question is, uh, w what's your future work plans? Like, do you have any big projects or kind of things you are uh, thinking uh, to work on? Um, well, that's a great question. I actually do want to maybe, I, one thing that's vaguely on the cards is to take a bit of a sabbatical to uh, think about this question. <laughs> so, I <have> some, <laughs> so I have some time to sort of introspect. And uh, so now that um, I think it feels like a certain phase is getting over with the first set of PhD students that I've worked with, uh, you know, basically coming to the um, the end of the PhD experience and hopefully we'll be graduating in the near future. I think with that, I think just want to take a bit of a breather and uh, mm. 
start charting out uh, what's next. I do plan to continue doing, um, you know, whatever tomfoolery I'm doing in terms of yeah, outreach yeah. and get, you know, sort of being out there and experimenting with things in the classroom. And, you know, so all of that uh, will be business as usual for, I think, the months to come. Um, in terms of research, I think, there, there are a lot of nice questions, but I, I'm afraid there are too many of them. So I think, um, you know, I, I, I need to really uh, probably take some time off to, uh, you know, also uh, catch up with a lot of literature that I think I've missed out on because I haven't, like I said, I haven't found the time to really sit down and uh, read and absorb things as much as I would like to. Uh, so yeah, that's a question that hopefully, uh, you know, if you allow me to come back and maybe in a, yes, in yes. a year's time after, <laughs> after the break uh, and after I've had a chance to think about it and do some homework on that question, I'll be able to, I'll, tell, I'll be able to tell you what's up next. But for now, it's just more of the same as, uh, is what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, Neildara, you would be actually coming back <laughs> and uh, I'd be very happy to actually hear what you have to say in terms of the, the prospects of uh, very interesting work, what you're doing. So this has been a wonderful conversation and I thank you very much uh, for your time and also, you know, generously sharing your knowledge. In fact, that is something which is uh, very important and uh, I, I really thank you very much for that. Well, I mean, thank you. Uh, you've been very kind and, um, you know, and also very patient with my long-winded, no, <laughs> rambly, no, no, no. rambly sort of answers. I really appreciate that. And uh, like I said, it's it's been uh, very special being a part of this experience and having this exchange with you. Uh, so I really appreciate it. Hopefully... Um, one of these days, maybe we can turn the tables. And if I have the confidence to be the person asking the questions, I'll check in on you and uh, your availability in due course. But uh, but until then, um, like I said, this is my first uh, podcast experience, and oh, wow. uh, it's been really great. wonderful, uh, you know, to to have had a chance to do it with you. I think it's really amazing. So thanks a ton for having me over, and thanks for all the truly amazing work that you're doing. I don't know how you do it all, uh, but it's very inspiring. And uh, more power to you to be doing, you know, more more of this and, and everything else that you have to really appreciate everything. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank, thanks. All so right. Much. Yeah. Take care and thanks everyone. Yeah. yeah. So this is Pratidwani where we try to humanize science with Neil Dara Mishra.